Do you know the northernmost place you could live while staying in society? Today, we're going to Svalbard. That's right, we are going to have a conversation with the only person I have ever met who lives in the world's northmost town. Holt Hancock is a snow scientist who uses research to help prevent human hazards. You'll find that his experiences in Svalbard are not only fascinating, they may also provide some keys to the question, what can we learn from the Arctic? Well, Holt, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I like to start off the show by just asking what one of the most special places in the world to you is. Well, for me, it's uh, the the river down where I grew up in Livingston, Montana. I grew up like five minute walk from the Yellowstone River, the longest undammed river in the lower 48 and spent a lot of time down there. I fished a lot. It's just such an easy way to, to go down and, and, and fly fish after work. Very low hassle kind of way to decompress. There's something about rivers to me as well, where the bubbling sound or, I mean, you get a lot of different audio. It's kind of, it's such a, I guess, dynamic environment that it's cool to, you know, go down and over the course of a week, you can see changes. So both in like the water and the, and the surrounding land. So that's pretty cool. I would love it if you could just introduce us to the work that you do in the Arctic. Uh, and I would love to know what interests or questions took you on this journey that you've been on. Yeah. And it wasn't that I uh, really set out with working in uh, snow science in the Arctic has wasn't really like a goal or anything originally, at least. But uh, I had yeah, growing up as a kid was very I just liked winter and snow and was interested in exploration. So, you know, read lots of mountaineering books and uh, books about Arctic exploration and Antarctic exploration and stuff, but cool. hadn't really ever imagined that I would see much less live in, uh, <laughs> in the Arctic. But it kind of just happened that I have always just kind of loved skiing. I guess that's kind of been my... Uh, a big driving force in my life. I'm lucky enough to be able to have that interest. And uh, yeah, I'd always just spent a lot of time reading about snow, reading about weather, following snow and weather conditions, and ended up studying snow science, actually, for my undergraduate degree at Montana State. So mine's technically a snow geography option. And so I did that and then really wasn't sure what I was going to do. So got a job ski patrolling at a ski area in Montana, Big Sky Resort, then just ended up having a friend send me a link that Montana State was looking for a master's student to work in Svalbard. I sent in an application. Really, the only thing I knew about Svalbard at that time was the the Golden Compass books or His Dark Materials yeah. series. Philip yeah. Holman um, had been one of my favorite trilogies. And uh, nice. the Svalbard's... Uh, featured in there. So it's the kingdom or the land of the armored bears. It seemed kind of like this cool, magical place in the books. And I was like, ah, yeah, it sounds good. It ended up being a PhD position. So I moved up to do a PhD in snow science here. I am just fascinated by what life in Svalbard is like. I looked on a map. I thought Lapland, which is like the north of Norway, is about as far north as you can go. And it turns out, yeah. you know, Svalbard is halfway further to the North Pole from the very, you know, upper reaches of Scandinavia. And it really is just, to me, this kind of out of this world place. Like, 
what yeah. is life in Svalbard like? Or it, it's also called Spitsbergen, is that right? Yeah, so Svalbard is actually the, um, the archipelago. And then Spitsbergen is the largest island in the kind of the center of the archipelago. So when you when you see a map of Svalbard, primarily you're looking at a map of Spitsbergen. It's kind of an interesting uh, geopolitical situation too. So the other uh, large city is about eight. Oh, I can't remember. So Longyearbyen's I think twenty three hundred people. And then there's another, the other kind of big city. Sure. There's another a Russian settlement about an hour and a half snowmobile ride to the east. Yeah, I was, I was looking up all the settlements around the world that are in the Arctic to figure out how far north a person can actually live. You live the farthest north possible from what I've been able to tell. Yeah, and I, I believe that's true. How long have you been there? So I've been living here full time since 2016. So this is kind of my sixth year was moving there i can only imagine that there was significant (laughs) shifts in lifestyle and you know rhythms and whatnot yeah it's kind of a place where time starts to have less of meaning i guess Mm -hmm. um, because the diurnal cycles with light are so extremely shifted and i think that was the biggest change is adjusting to just extreme light conditions and I'm not sure, I, w- I was realizing this year, we're just now coming out of our, our dark season. So there's light coming back. And I, I was realizing that I don't know if my body will ever fully adjust to yeah. <laughs> three months of total darkness. What do you do when it's three months of total darkness? L- Longer being here, it does a pretty good job. There's quite, it, there hasn't been maybe as much social activity just based on Corona for the last couple seasons but they have for example there's jazz festivals or cultural events um otherwise it's if you want to be outside a lot of it's having either waiting for a full moon or having a really good headlight i bet this would be like an avid stargazer's dream in some ways right like the stars i'm sure the air is you know very unpolluted by light yeah so there's a and there's actually quite a bit of uh uh I guess kind of this upper atmospheric research that that happens here as well. So you get incredible stargazing, pretty good mm-hmm. northern lights, and then we're also far enough north that because it's dark in the middle of the day. And I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but you can see northern lights in the middle of the day, which is pretty cool. It's mm-hmm. interesting, actually. We're too far north for the most outrageous kind of northern lights. Mm-hmm. So actually, the there's an oval that kind of circles the globe where the northern lights are the strongest and we're a little bit north of that this time of year when the light's coming back you almost get like a bit manic in terms of feeling the energy coming back and getting ready feeling like things need to start happening you need to be out doing things and uh, during the light periods when you just your body doesn't receive the signal that okay now you're getting tired now it's time to go to bed it's if you're not very disciplined about going into a room that's dark and attempting to sleep, it's very easy. One could just stay up for 24 hours, no problem, just because your body's not receiving the signal. <laughs> I'm curious about glaciers and um, glacial calving. Is it common to see glaciers out on the ocean in Svalbard? Is, is that also part of that Arctic environment? Yeah, so Svalbard is actually quite heavily glaciated. So we have, I mean, just a couple kilometers up the valley here, we have two small land-based glaciers. 
so that pretty much once you're out of town up valley here, you end up on glaciers. But right in this area, part of one of the reasons that Longyearbyen is actually where it is is because it's not as heavily glaciated here. So it was easier to build a town and access the coal. But in many other parts of the the archipelago, you do have these large marine terminating glaciers. Even just uh, across the fjord here, you can see quite substantial glaciers that, that are running out into the fjord. And so the ocean freezes over in Svalbard during the winter, is that right? It does not anymore, actually. We're on the west side of the island or the archipelago. And so there's actually a warm ocean current just off the coast that's the northernmost extension of the Gulf Stream. And so it's kind of the northernmost ice-free portion of the Arctic Ocean during the winter. The east side of the island freezes, but the fjords here do not freeze solid anymore. They used to maybe 20 or 25 years ago, but don't anymore. Um, So we do have open ocean all, all winter here now. And is it also true that you have to take rifles out of town with you if you go out of town because of polar bears? Yeah, you're technically supposed to take a rifle out of town due to polar bears in the area. Wow. So So it really is the kingdom of polar bears. (laughs) Yeah, the polar bears are super cool. And they there's I think there's more polar bears than people on the island. So you have 3000 something 3500. I don't know the exact number, but there are polar bears. We don't have see them so much here, especially during the winter, because they're primarily where there's sea ice because they're eating the seals on the sea ice or hunting seals on the sea ice. Have you seen many polar bears in your time there? Yeah. And thankfully, I've seen them all from a distance, uh, which is kind (laughs) of, which is how you want it to be. They're incredibly impressive animals. And it's, uh, I have not become immune to seeing them. I think it's one of the coolest things in the world when you see, when you see the polar bears. I've seen plenty, but uh, I'm always excited to see them when you do get lucky enough to get the chance. I heard the International Seed Bank is also up in Svalbard, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, just um, a couple kilometers west of town, and they've redone it recently. Huh. So it's, uh, I, I, I have myself never been inside of it, but that's a, that's a very cool thing that, that is here. The idea is if something goes terribly, like if there's nuclear warfare and, you know, plants and whatnot start to just get decimated, that we at least have some something that could repopulate a population in case, you know, the rest of the world goes gravely, gravely wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a it kind of like a, a preservation site for the floral biodiversity across the globe. And so the idea is that the seeds from as many plant species as possible, I believe, are put there to be preserved in the event of some sort of natural or human caused catastrophe. Fascinating. I'd love to tack back a little bit more toward, you know, the work that brought you to Svalbard and, and what you've been working on. You work in avalanches and studying, predicting avalanches and even studies rather that relate to hazards around humans. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the work you do is and maybe a bit about the research you've been doing? Yeah, so um, just to step briefly back, the context of Longyearbyen is a little bit important here is that there's no there's no indigenous people in Svalbard, actually. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that this there's settlement here is historically because there's a 
very easy access to coal. So it's a it's been a mining town. And because the coal mines are in the mountains, the town here is located very close. Basically, it's in a very in the valley bottom of a steep, formerly glaciated valley. So it's very close to steep slopes. In 2015, there was a snow avalanche hit town and uh, mm-hmm. with residents in their homes. And so that was, uh, I believe, two people were killed and a bunch of houses were destroyed. It was a pretty traumatic event for the community. And so kind of as part of that, in a bit in response to that, there's been quite a focus on snow avalanches and beginning to manage those risks that avalanches pose to the town here. My PhD work, I was... I guess most broadly kind of just measuring or attempting to measure snow here because it sounds like I mean it's a pretty simple question to say okay how much does it snow somewhere but when you really start looking into it 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 can be a bit of a difficult question to to actually answer I I use the terrestrial laser scanner or ground-based LIDAR to measure snowpack or snow accumulation on the slopes in town. And so, because when you're thinking about avalanches, when you get a lot of new snow or snow accumulating on the slopes, that's a time where you want to think about, okay, when this is occurring, this is very likely to lead to avalanches. So you really want to know how and where and when snow is accumulating on on the slopes. And the laser scanner is super cool because you can actually measure with quite good accuracy snow accumulation across an entire slope. So instead of when you're thinking about measuring snow, often we have these, for example, some sort of sensor that's just shooting off an ultrasonic pulse down measuring the reflection and you get a you get the snow depth measurement from a single point. The laser scanner is cool because you can spatially distribute these kind of measurements across the whole slope. So you can see across, you know, some of these slopes are several kilometers wide and 400 meters vertical. I did a fair amount of work with that just in terms of coupling weather conditions to where snow accumulates and how that relates to avalanches releasing. You know, I think to take a step back on avalanches, I think I have a very film-based knowledge of avalanches. I've never seen an avalanche though in real life. And I, I don't know, I don't know, how do avalanches work? Is there, are there mechanics or details that are important to know about that? Yeah, so the like if you were to most broadly define snow avalanche, it's just a mass of snow moving rapidly down a steep mountainside. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're kind of when we think real basically about avalanches, there are various different kinds of avalanches. You can have just small kind of what you would call a loose snow avalanche, which is just related to loss of cohesion in the surface snow, basically. So that just means if you're on a steep slope and something causes the snow to lose a bit of cohesion, typically the sun hits it and it loses a little bit of the strength, then just these small little sloughs will run down slope. Mm-hmm. The avalanches that we're typically worried about in terms of danger to to humans and infrastructure are what are called slab avalanches. And that's where you have a, a cohesive snow layer sitting on the slope. And then under that, you have some sort of what we call a weak layer or a layer that doesn't have the same kind of physical properties And so what can happen is that weak layer will collapse and fail to support the overlying slab. When that happens, you can get that the overlying slab of cohesive snow will move down slope, given that you're on a steep enough 
slope. So that's just usually, like a solid or not a solid plate, but like a plate of snow moving over a mountainside, like all at the same time or something. Yeah, exactly. These are the movie avalanches that can be quite large and are often quite, quite impressive. And so what you're thinking about when you're, for example, wanting to predict avalanches or from a hazard management perspective, you're thinking about what can, if you have, first of all, this, this snow structure where you have a slab and an underlying weak layer, and then also if that weak layer will, will end up failing. And that can be anything from somebody walking, driving, or skiing over the slab and causing the weak layer to collapse, or you can have additional loading from snow loading, for example, from a big snowstorm that can cause that weak layer to collapse. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then you end up with natural, what we call natural avalanches or avalanches that are just occurring somewhat spontaneously due to natural conditions. And I mean, avalanches are still, my impression is that they, you know, there's still a lot of deaths related to avalanches as well as like property damage around the world, right? It's still a realized hazard. I think there's quite a bit of, on an annual basis, it is one of the most dangerous natural hazards in the in the U.S. at least. You can sort of start separating it because a lot of these fatalities are actually recreationalists that are out perhaps skiing on steeper slopes in the backcountry where there's not some sort of avalanche control. Um, uh-huh. So they're skiing on uncontrolled slopes in the backcountry, snowmobiling on uncontrolled slopes in the backcountry. So are they uh, causing those avalanches? Like, do people cause avalanches typically, or is it just random? I think it's like 90% of the time the the victims are actually triggering the avalanche themselves. So there, uh-huh. as you're skiing or snowmobiling or walking on a steeper slope, you are the what's causing the weak layer to fail. Right. And that's, in a large part, there's been these hazard and risk mitigation strategies, including avalanche forecasting, um, some sort of structural protections. You see this a lot in the Alps, especially, um, that have really reduced the risks and fatalities related to people living in their homes, people driving on, on roads. Yeah, fatalities and damages caused due to that. That's in a way a bit why the the avalanche here in Longyearbyen in 2015 was kind of a, a fairly big deal for Norway because these were these were people living in their homes mm-hmm. basically. And so then that that made it clear that um, first of all that we needed more information about avalanches here in Svalbard and then potentially even more importantly they needed strategies to to mitigate some of these risks. Got it. So to tack back for one second, when when an avalanche happens, did you say you were on ski patrol in your yeah. graph? Okay. So you were you yeah. were on, on a ski patrol. Is that something that you dealt with? Are you out on those back slopes helping people in those situations? Yeah. So um big sky, which is what what you call a class A avalanche area. And that means that in the U.S., the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives has licensed that area to use explosives to trigger avalanches. So in what the a U.S., bureau. there's yeah. <laughs> alcohol, tobacco, explosives, and what was the last one? Firearms. Firearms. That's quite the yeah. quite the organization. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. as you were saying. <laughs> So at ski areas in the U.S., if you have avalanche terrain, you want people to ski, which is like your steeper, typically black or double black diamond runs. 
you as a skier are more or less responsible for controlling or mitigating avalanche hazard in those locations. Right. And that's often done via the use of explosives. So if we're back to, we're thinking about a, a slab and a weak layer where you're using, and it's not particularly refined because you're essentially just throwing a two and a half pound bomb, explosive. Right? Yeah, it's a bomb. It's just a, it's a, a two and a half pounds of TNT basically on the oh that explodes that hopefully triggers your avalanche if you have a if you haven't what we call an instability in the snowpack so, and so as what, a skier are you like throwing a bomb behind you of tnt and then out skiing the avalanche or how does that work <laughs> no it's a lot less dramatic than that so there's a pretty uh, a pretty well established what you call avalanche control routes where you have safe places and protocols for for actually deploying the explosives but in practice you are loading your backpack with several yeah i mean up to like 25 pounds of uh, explosives and then you are skiing down your avalanche control route and yeah, throwing an explosive into your avalanche start areas. And then you just have to wait. So you're carrying 25 pounds of TNT in a backpack and you throw it onto the hillside and then you have like an escape route, but you got to get out of there. You do, but uh, you're not, you've messed something up if you're uh, (laughs) trying to outrun the avalanche in a big way. So you you can actually deploy the, you can deploy the explosives from ideally a safe location. Yeah. You have a 90 second fuse typically. And so you, you're you're either throwing it or um, you even have the, bomb trams, which you would put it on a basically hanging from a piece of rope. And then you can run that rope out so that it's over the avalanche release area. Wow. That is wild, man. Skiing with bombs (laughs) in a backpack. I, I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the, and again, it sounds, I think it, especially when you talk about it, it, it sounds pretty (laughs) wild and, uh, crazy but it's actually a pretty there's a quite a bit of thought and especially safety protocols that go into the entire process so so that's something you you had done in the past and now your research is kind of taking you into more of the i guess your preventative proactive side where you're trying to you know even analyze more specifically where avalanches might happen how we can predict them which ones might be deadly or not, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're looking at that. And then, so, so my, I guess my PhD research was kind of focused on these measurements and gathering data about avalanches. And then I've been lucky enough to since then move into a role in a project. The project's called ArcDrisk. So it's, it's looking at a risk governance of climate related or systemic risks in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And so, if now it's looking more at now I'm I guess more interested in especially professionally and actually what you do with this data that you're collecting and how can this data be put into a, a system that ultimately makes our communities safer. And I yeah. think that's kind of interesting because it is of course cool to be able to to measure snow accurately across slopes, but I mean you're if you're just sitting with all this data on a hard drive or stored somewhere, it's not really doing people much good. So it's interesting to think about, okay, so we're getting better at measuring snow. 
we're understanding more how the weather patterns or climate is changing in the Arctic, for example. And so how can we use this data actually to be more, to improve or uh, yeah, improve the safety of societies more generally? I think that's kind of a, a for me at least, is a little bit more of a compelling uh, question. I mean, honestly, I can't think of a better reason to use data, math, science in a compelling, purposeful way. Like you're trying to save lives and save homes through the knowledge that you're accruing. That, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. And it's been cool for me because like, like I said, I've worked practically with uh, avalanche mitigation at this ski area and I've been involved kind of with with avalanche forecasting since I've I've lived up here as well. But it's cool to see that there's kind of this whole other even academic arena of kind of safety science and risk mm-hmm. governance theory that that actually studies and provides frameworks for how these how you go from data to to a decision about kind of societal safety. So it, it's cool mm-hmm. to 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 get involved a bit in that. I think it's a neat way to see how all this different work can be is interconnected i guess you mentioned climate change you know being one of these elements is that something that you think will be relevant for your work moving forward the the fact that the climate is changing in some pretty serious ways yeah and it's um especially working in svalbard so svalbard is kind of uh, very relevant in terms of these climatic changes in that arena because this this area is actually the one of if not the location on the the earth where the climate's changing the fastest and primarily that's manifested in terms of increased temperatures so when you're thinking about in terms of snow avalanches increased precipitation and increased temperatures those are two changes that are going to end up influencing these questions of how, when, and where snow avalanches are occurring. The problem is, is that you've got all kinds of, and I get this is with everything, that it sounds simple at first, and then once you really start looking into it, there's all kinds of weird nonlinear relationships or feedbacks that make it so that it's not super clear. Human responses to climate are, are complicated as well. And so kind of part of the work is just trying to figure out what's going to happen. But also from a risk perspective, you can also start thinking about ways that these decision-making avenues or the, the ways that people are responding to this can better, can be made more robust or um, better able to actually handle or manage the uncertainty that's, that's involved with these changing risks. But the short answer would be that if you're working with anything related to weather and climate in Svalbard or in the Arctic, the climate change is going to be a huge part of your work now and going forward just because things are changing so rapidly here. That's kind of an interesting position to be in as a a scientist and a member of society that you are experiencing rapid climate change and so it's a pretty cool way, like conceptually, if you start to frame, especially some of the, some of this work that, okay, so if you're, we know that here in the Arctic, especially are high latitudes, climate's changing more rapidly than lower latitudes where 
more people are living. But if you start developing strategies for managing some of this climatic uncertainty or these climatic changes in these Arctic settings, ideally, that knowledge or those strategies can then be transferred to lower latitudes, potentially where more people are are living as climate begins to change change more rapidly there. And so that that's a cool place to be where you can, yeah, kind of be at the... Yeah, really, you're like, you're at the forefront of dealing with climate change and making decisions that, yeah, potentially many other people will look to once their homes start getting massively affected by various, you know, climate change factors. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is, is kind of incorporating this uncertainty. So as you can hear a little bit, we, do, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but there is there are frameworks for incorporating that uncertainty into your, well, let's talk about like your, your snow avalanche hazard assessments. Kind of because people are living here needing to deal with these avalanche issues, snow avalanche issues operationally. So on a day-to-day basis for for societal safety, that uncertainty needs to somehow be incorporated into these operational analyses. And so the, the strategies that we use to do that here will hopefully be able to be transferred to other locations. I think that's that really hits home. Like we we don't know what's going to happen with climate change, and that's scary, but it's also important to have people in that spot wrestling with it and figuring out what that looks like. I mean, I'm glad somebody's doing it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, I'm just curious. We've, you know, we've hit on a lot of topics. Is there anything else that you kind of wish that people knew about, whether that's the work you do or living in the Arctic or any of the topics we've covered? I find the Arctic and polar regions to be super interesting and special places, and they are changing so rapidly right now. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to say how long the Arctic. I would encourage people to, if you get a chance, even if it's uh, you're scrolling Netflix or uh, something like that, to to take the time and watch a watch an Arctic documentary or read a book about it because it's it's unclear how long the Arctic or at least the area around Svalbard will be the way it is now. So I would encourage people to, if they can uh, enjoy it while it's here. Those are pressing words. Well, Holt, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I thank you so much for coming onto the show. This is fascinating. And I think it's really stoked some, some questions that I need to follow up on and, and learn a bit more about. Yeah. Thank you, John. It was good to talk with you again. Thank you so much, Holt, for sharing just a little bit of your experiences and insights. We really appreciate your time. That's all for now, everybody. But please stay tuned for upcoming shows. We are going to continue our wide travels across the world of geography and all of the special places, experiences, and insights that it can bring to us. Stay tuned. Uncharted Geography is an educational resource designed to help our global community learn about the world and its activities. It is hosted, recorded, mixed, and produced by John McHugh.